Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. If I could, then I would. I'll go wherever you will go. Why is he singing? I thought this was a science podcast. We'll get there. My guest today on the podcast is Nader Jivanji. In the middle of doing a PhD in theoretical physics at UC Berkeley, Nader took a few years off to work as a professional musician playing the drums. He spent a lot of time on tour with a rock band, and he had some of it free during the days on the bus or wherever touring rockers hang out. And instead of getting high or playing darts at the bar or whatever, he wrote a textbook. It's called An Introduction to Tensors and Group Theory for Physicists. Okay, so Nader eventually finished the PhD, switched fields a bit, and now he's a climate scientist. But I had to start with that story because it might just be the coolest thing in anyone's scientific biography ever. The textbook is listed on Nader's academic CV, although it doesn't say there that he wrote it on a rock band tour bus between gigs, but it should. And while we're at it, it could also say that while he was still in high school, Nader played with the band that did that song I sang at the beginning. You know that song, of course. But anyway, Nader is now a rock star in climate science. His webpage says, I study the physics of clouds, radiation, and climate using a hierarchy of approaches, ranging from pencil and paper theory to comprehensive computer simulations. End quote. This notion of a hierarchy, with models spanning the range between the complexity of the real phenomena in the atmosphere and the relative simplicity of what the human mind can truly grasp, is critically important in our field. But the hard part is often coming up with the simplest models that can actually tell us something useful, and Nader, in his relatively short career to date, has made some real breakthroughs on that front. So we talk in detail in this conversation about the one where Nader explains the magnitude of the direct radiative forcing of climate by a given amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. There's hardly a more fundamental fact about climate change than that, and it's something most of us thought we knew everything we needed to know about. It's 4 watts per meter squared for a doubling of CO2. But then Nader showed that we didn't really understand where that number came from, and actually it could be explained quantitatively much more simply and elegantly than anyone had before. Though we didn't talk about it as much, he has a similarly beautiful analysis that explains the magnitude of the global mean precipitation change for a given amount of global warming. Besides his science itself, Nader is deeply engaged in the communication of climate science to the wider world. In particular, he's made unusually direct, sincere, and maybe even effective efforts to reach out not just to the public, but to those who don't necessarily accept the scientific consensus on global warming, that is, the people who are hardest to talk to about it. And he tells me one good story in which he actually made a dent in the denial of someone particularly prominent in that space, and also about his broader efforts with a group he co-founded called Climate Up Close. Also, Nader met his wife while he was playing drums in the circus, and she was doing aerial acrobatics. How many scientists can say that? One, I think, is probably what that number is. Anyway, you get the idea. Nader is a great scientist and a really multi-talented, interesting guy. 
So it's a lot better you hear from him than from me. Let's stop the intro. Here's my conversation with Nader Jivanji. Nader, thank you for doing this. Yeah, my thank pleasure. You for joining me. And uh, how I'd like to start, if you're willing, is how we usually start, which is with your biography. Okay. So if we start at the beginning, um, where are you from? I am born and raised in Los Angeles. Um, okay. My parents are both from Pakistan. And uh, yeah, lived there my entire life uh, uh, in California uh, until moving to Princeton like four years ago. So L.A. proper or? L.A. proper, yeah, actually just um, a few miles east of Venice Beach. We live just off Venice Boulevard. Yeah. And when did your folks get to, to the States from Pakistan? Gosh, um, my dad in the mid to late 60s and my mom a handful of years later, maybe like early 70s. Yeah. Did they come for school or jobs or? Yeah, you know, it was that whole thing in the, the Johnson administration, right? They changed the, the immigration rules so that they were no longer uh, pegged to quotas um, or the mm-hmm. quotas weren't pegged to the existing um, distribution. And so, uh, so there's a lot of South Asian immigration at that time, amongst other things. So my dad came with that wave for, for education, ended up at UCLA. And then my mom met him a few years later. Uh, as, under, as an undergrad he came or? Actually, I'm trying to remember. Um, yes, that's right. He did engineering undergrad at uh, UCLA. Oh, so is he an engineer for his career then? No, he ended up dabbling and doing a lot of different things and ended up working uh, in construction and also day trading and sort okay. of a scattered employment. And you have brothers and sisters? Yes, I have a twin sister. Uh, oh, okay. Who, yeah, uh, Sara. She's a doctor in San Francisco. And then an older brother, Ali, who's an architect in LA with his wife. So tell me about uh, early life. Did you get interested in science at a young age? No. I got interested in music when I was 12 or 13 um, Uh and got really obsessed with that for all throughout high school. I went to a performing arts high school. I was, you know, playing drums or uh, so that's my instrument, drums and percussion. And so I was doing that three or four hours a day at school. And then two hours when I got home, I was just totally obsessed. Okay. So music. So you're playing the drums like, in a like rock music kind of or what? Everything, just anything I could Everything. get my hands on. So, um, so I was playing in the in the percussion ensemble, in the wind ensemble, in the symphony orchestra, in the jazz band. Then I had rock oh. bands. Uh, I was playing within my garage. So, just anything I could get my hands on. So that must have made you like cool in high school. <laughs> well, I was, I was, uh, I'm interested in your take on this. I ended up really being mostly a jazz nerd in high school, so I'm not sure it made me cool. It just made me a different kind of nerd. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was one of those. Yeah. I, uh-huh. I, yeah. Um, well, it's not the worst. It's not the worst kind of nerd to be, but yeah. No, it's not. I mean, there's always the marching <laughs> band, right? <laughs> but actually, then, actually, towards the end of high school, I joined a rock band that had a record deal and ended up actually having a huge hit on the radio in like 2000, 2001. Um, they were called The Calling. So I played with them for two years and signed their record deal with them and hung out on the Sunset Strip and kind of did the Hollywood thing and, you know. Um, okay, wait a second. I knew you were a musician, but I didn't realize. Is this, do I know this song? Like what I? Yeah, you know it. You know it. What's the name of the song? The song is called Wherever You Will Go. And you're touring and recording and doing all that kind of stuff? No, we, we spent a couple of years kind of like rehearsing and doing some recording. Uh, they actually kicked me out of the band. Um, uh, like a year before they made the record. Uh, so this gets back to your question about, you know, me and science. 
you know, so for most of my teenagers, I was really focused on music. Um, and I actually, I went to University of Southern California as a music major. And then I got there and I was, I was, uh, I was really bumming out on the music curriculum there. Like I still loved playing and I wanted to be a pro, but I was bumming out on music theory and sight singing and all the requirements. And I remembered having, so this is my freshman year and I remember freshman in college and I remember having taken this, uh, you know, AP physics in high school and loving it. Like it, it really turned me on. Um, I didn't do anything beyond it. I just went to class and enjoyed it, but it really stuck with me. And so then when I was not having a good time majoring in music in, in college, in my freshman year, I remembered that physics class. And, you know, my brother had kind of been into physics. My older brother, he was a little bit of a physics wonderkind when he was in high school. And I remember hearing him talk about it and being kind of, you know, having my interest peaked. And so I ended up switching to physics after one semester uh, of college. And then I had some great teachers and really got bit by the bug. And so I sort of had this, you know, the rest of my college years was me like playing a lot of music, you know, in ensembles on campus and also on the side. And I remember one semester I was in like seven bands, um, yeah. Latin ska bands, rock bands, jazz bands, um, swing bands. I mean, you know, everything you could think of. So I was doing all this music stuff, like staying up late, playing clubs, and then like going to learn quantum physics at nine in the morning. And coming home in the afternoon, doing my homework, and then more rehearsals and gigs in the evening. And, uh, and that's how it went for years. And yeah, so when I was in the calling, the guys eventually got sick of me, like, <laughs> leaving the hang to go do my physics homework or having a jazz band concert when they wanted to play, you know, the Roxy. So eventually they, uh, they, they, they gave me the boot. Okay, wait, this is a great story, but I have, I have some details I have to fill in here. So yeah. first of all, did you go straight to college or did you take some time as a musician in between? Uh, I went straight. I ended okay. up taking time and, later in grad school, which we can get to. Right. And the other question is like, how'd your parents feel about this? I mean, well, first of all, I'm kind of surprised your father, who is at least trained as an engineer, and somehow the science didn't get to you until pretty late. That almost seems like it takes a certain amount of rebellion for that to, to happen. I mean, how'd they feel about when they thought you were going to be a musician? Were they cool with that? or They were totally cool with it. Um, my dad was pretty hands off. And my mom, I think, actually related more to music that I was making than to science that I was thinking about. Okay. Um, so well, she, I mean, relating to the music is one thing, but a lot of parents think, you know, right. the kid is not going to... I mean, right. I, I, mean, I guess you were successful right away at a young age, so maybe that's what... That's true. I mean, you know, I was 18 years old, 17 years old. We got signed to a major label and each got cut fat checks, you know, like money we didn't even yeah. know what to do with, so... Right. That so, yeah. shuts down a lot of objections, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. They were very loving parents. They saw how serious I was about it. And I don't think it occurred to them to, you know, to step in. Yeah. Uh, and I think they trusted that I would figure things out. Um, yeah. but, but I remember once I started to get towards my senior year in college, you know, I really started to get serious about science and I was going to apply to grad school. And I, I added a math major to my physics major. And so I was still playing a lot of music, but I was also spending a lot of time studying. And I remember my mom would come into my room to like, you know, give me a hug good night. And she'd see me pouring over, you know, some abstract mathematics book, which you couldn't make heads or tails of, you know. And I was so engrossed in it that she'd give me a hug and I wouldn't even look up from it to wish her good night. I'd just say like, good night, mom. And I had my head buried in the book. And I think that kind of turned her off. And I remember one time having a fight with her in those years. And she said, just, just go upstairs and do your math. See if I care. 
Well, yeah, that is not a typical uh, parental reaction. So not you're living at home during college. I did, yeah. I lived on campus for a couple of years and then ended up just moving home for a few years. And All right. Wow. So, okay. I mean, it's it's the, you know, the music and physics combination is not that unusual. As you know, I was one of them, but you're a particularly intense case, it seemed like, because you actually had success as a musician early on and you added the math major and you, yeah, you... Wow. Yeah, I was uh, I was going whole hog. I just uh, yeah, I was just so enamored with with both. Yep. Okay, so you graduate, and then what happens? So graduate, and then you know, had caught the physics bug bad enough that I wanted to go to grad school in physics. Like I wanted to learn general relativity and quantum field theory and all these and string theory, all these exotic topics that you know I'd read about in popular science books. Yeah. So I wanted just to see what they were all about. And I'd taken these extra math courses. So I felt like I, I knew what the math was. And I just wanted to see what these physical theories were like. So I really just wanted to learn more. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up going, going up to Northern California to Berkeley uh, for graduate school. And you must still, have been a very good student. Probably hard, pretty hard to get into Berkeley for physics, I think. It's one of the very top places. Yeah, I, I ended up doing really well. And I think it's funny. I mean, I think at USC, especially at the time, more so now, but at the time it wasn't as known for the quality of its students or, or the academic program. It had a reputation as a little bit of a party school and a football school. I think that's changed yeah. uh, since I went there. But so I had, you know, there weren't very many physics majors. And so it was a small group. And, and I think I was one of the more motivated ones. So I actually got a lot of really great FaceTime with excellent instructors who then, you know, wrote me good letters and really ended up working out. And so I got into several really good grad programs and, uh, and yeah, went to Berkeley. I brought my drums because I still wanted to play. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so I spent, uh, let's see, three years there. Uh, so the first three years I was like taking classes and, you know, kind of doing, doing a little bit of drumming in the evening, not as much as I was doing in LA, but still trying to play in like a few bands and playing for hire and trying to cultivate like a semi-professional side job as a drummer, Yeah. Um, which was fun, you know, playing a lot of clubs and again, playing in a variety of groups. And then just really reading textbooks and studying all the time, like just out of a passion for it. You know, my roommates from that time remember me waking up, you know, on Saturdays and Sundays and just like getting up from my bed and going straight to my desk and flipping over the general, Rel general relativity textbook and just reading it and doing exercises out of the back of the book. So, yeah, so I just I did that for a few years. It was a blast. Um, the Berkeley Physics Department really drew um, in terms of graduate students just really wonderful crew of people, just bright and outgoing and adventurous. And we really had a, a terrific time. And then three years into it, I sort of hit a wall with theoretical physics, I had trouble finding an advisor and a problem that was a good match for me. And one day I came home from school and I got a, I got a phone call from, um, from another musician, uh, this guy, Justin King, who, who had gotten a record deal, different record company this time, uh, but still another one of the majors, and was looking for a drummer. And having hit a wall with, with my physics trajectory, I just took a, took a big left turn and I left grad school uh, for what ended up being four years and went uh -huh. on tour and made records um, with Justin King and his band. Okay. I, I knew that you'd done this, but I didn't, I didn't remember the name of the band. So is there also a song that I would know here? Or no, that... unfor unfortunately, it was a great band. Um, but unfortunately, the record never came out on the major label we were signed to. They dropped us and we released it on our own. We ended up being kind of a ragtag operation, you know, doing van and trailer touring across the country that we booked and 
uh, and organized. Um, but it was such a blast. And it was kind of fun to do it that way. You know, it was just motels and people's couches and, you know, playing really great venues and playing crappy venues and, um, you know, just having the time of our lives. But then it was funny. I mean, I guess, you know, a thread that you can see through all of this is sort of, even if when, you know, music or physics had taken the lead, I, I had trouble leaving the other one behind completely. And so I've always yep. tried, like, you know, had the other one going on the side. So even when I joined Justin's band and, you know, we were really focused on that, you know, I was still studying things I was interested in. And I'd also had an idea for a textbook that I wanted to write. Yeah. Um, because I'd really spent a lot of time in graduate school and in undergrad trying to connect the dots between the math that's used in physics and the way they showed to you in the physics books and the way you learn that math in, in math books. You know, whether it's tensor algebra or differential geometry, the mathematics yeah. at root is the same, but the language and the notation and the way they talk about it is, is, is really different. It can be yeah. hard to see how it all fits together. Right. And I'd spent a lot of time trying to connect those dots. And I could tell that my physics classmates were quite confused by all this. They didn't see how the mathematics of quantum mechanics was actually the same as some of the mathematics of relativity. But for me, it was crystal clear. And so I, I kind of jotted down notes for a textbook that I wanted to write on this subject. But, you know, my advisors in grad school said it was a bad idea and that I should focus on research. And they were right, you know, as far as that goes. But then when I was touring with the band and we were busy at night, but sometimes kind of bored during the day, uh, I started writing it. And so that was a project that kind of continued, you know, through the touring years and, and after that. So, yeah, I do know this story because you've told it to me before. I mean, there's a lot of musician physicists out there, but I think having written a group theory is what the textbook was about, right? Uh, yeah, what's it called? An Introduction we, we, to Tensors and Group Theory for Physicists. Right, which is a pretty <laughs> uh, abstract uh, topic in, yes, in yes. mathematical physics. And uh, right. I think ha writing a textbook on group theory while touring and playing <laughs> drums, you, you, I think you may literally be the only person in the world, not only to have ever done that exact thing, but even to have any done anything resembling that. I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> remarkable achievement. I mean, you know, w why weren't you like, I don't know, drinking beer and smoking weed and <laughs> playing pinball? I mean, I don't know. It's just incredible to me how we could have that kind of focus. Yeah. But um, I mean, I definitely was, you know, hanging out of the bar and having a good time. But it turns out that, you know, even including the the partying, you know, being in a rock band, it, those kinds of activities occupy like maybe five hours a day, you know, right. like, but for some people, that's the goal. Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think one thing I've learned about myself is um, I, I bore easily. And I don't mean that being in the band was boring, or that music was boring, but that I just like my brain just like needs food, it needs something to chew on. Um, I mean, I guess the other thing, you know, the other thing about this story that I kind of want to go back to before we move on from this is like what happened in that first three years in grad school that caused you to bail out of it? Because, I mean, you said you couldn't find an advisor and you hit a wall, but it must have even been obvious then that you had a, some amount of talent and could do the work. So, like, what was it that went wrong, you know, and I mean, is there anything you can say to articulate yeah. There? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it was it was mostly that um, I was a really good student. I was really good at reading textbooks and digesting what was in them and, you know, doing lots of like homework problem calculations to round up my understanding. 
but I had no idea what it meant to do research, mm. you know, to pose a research question, to mm. figure out what the steps were, to mm. answer it. And, to, and the other thing is that I had no idea, you know, physics and drumming to a large degree actually came kind of easily. And so to, to then face something that required like real perseverance and willpower where you just kind of have to like hit your head against it until you overcome it. You know, it's a mountain you have to climb over. I had almost no experience with that. And I think actually temperamentally, I wasn't suited to it for whatever reason when something got hard and it wasn't clear to me how to do it, I would just bail. And and when I eventually did end up, you know, completing my PhD um, with Dave Romps in, in Earth Sciences at Berkeley, you know, that was just a huge growth area that I had to had to grow into was developing that kind of perseverance. And I, I just didn't have it at that early Okay, stage. so let's get to that in a minute, but just to dwell on this moment, because I mean, I have this conversation with graduate students and especially prospective graduate students a lot and undergraduates yeah. from here who are thinking about moving on and they say, should I go? Should I take time off? And I generally tell people that, you know, everybody's different and it depends on who you are, but most people I think should take time off. I mean, I did. Um, right. And I think for me, I mean, I didn't have the desire to go to grad school when I got out of college anyway, but um, so it was a different situation. But I mean, I what I found, I had four years working in the quote unquote real world um, and, you know, going through some amount of suffering in various ways. I mean, yeah. nothing, obviously nothing terrible, but just, you know, normal right. struggles of somebody, young person trying to figure a career out. You know, so by the time I got to grad school, I kind of really knew I wanted to be there. And I had some kind of like adult work ethic that had didn't come easily to me either. But you uh -huh. kind of go through whatever you go through. Yeah. And that and whereas some of my friends who came straight out of undergraduate who were very, very talented and capable scientists, but they also like somewhere in the middle, they kind of get a little depressed and like, why am I doing this? You know, it's a lot of work. Where's it going? Do I really want to be here? Yep. What else could I be doing? Yep. And if you haven't already got that out of your system, you know, some of us need to go through that and, um, and to understand that research really is different and it's a job and you have to, you know, you takes a, it takes a different kind of focus and, and maturity. Yeah. I mean, your story is perhaps the most extreme version of this. Well, just because that you actually started and then you left and did yeah. totally different and wrote a textbook in the meantime. I mean, it's just an extreme story, but it, it's an extreme story that illustrates a general, you know, principle that I think is true for a lot of people. Absolutely. And that's why I want to dwell on it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and eventually returning to graduate school, you know, I mean, I spent a couple, a few, two and a half years in the band. Then I spent a year and a half actually playing drums in a circus in San Francisco. Any good yep. stories from that? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I met my wife there. Um, you know, I would, uh, was she I in mean, the circus? She was. Yeah. She was a performer. What does she do? Uh, aerial, aerial acrobatics. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. You just saw her high up in the air and figured, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no comment. <laughs> okay. Um, but, um, I mean, it was really a neat place. It was called Teatro Zanzani, and it was very close-knit. Like, you become close with most of the people that work there. Uh, and it was really just mm -hmm. a neat, special place. And I feel so lucky to have had that time both with the band. You know, those guys are lifelong friends. And then also uh, at, at the Teatro, where, again, you know, a lot of really close relationships and friendships. I mean, it was hilarious, though, because, you know, I, 
I, I got this gig at this at, at the circus in San Francisco, and so Berkeley was just across the bay, and so I, I didn't re-enroll immediately, but I started to make contact with a potential advisor and attend his group meetings and read papers. So again, I was sort of like doing physics during the day and also finishing my textbook and then playing drums in the circus at night. And sometimes I would, you know, like go to group meetings at Berkeley and we'd be in front of the chalkboard for hours geeking out on like the most esoteric mathematical physics. And then I'd take the train like straight into San Francisco to go straight to the circus. And it was all, you know, fishnets and acrobats and corsets and, you know, just a complete other world. Um, Okay, so you go back to Berkeley, you're doing the theoretical physics, uh, and at some point you decided to actually re-enroll, but you weren't in in earth science yet at that I wasn't actually. You know, I was still kind of interested in theoretical physics, so I'm back for a couple years. Did you have a research area in mind yet, or? I did, I did, yeah. It was, you know, loop quantum gravity, sort of a, uh, you know, a sort of, like a competitor to string theory, and there was someone on the Berkeley faculty who was interested in that, and, and one of my best friends um at berkeley and and still a very close friend was also in that group and so you know i was i was working with him as well but you know that advisor was pretty hands-off and and again i i still really had uh, a work ethic issue and that i didn't know how to push through something that was hard and unpleasant Mm. Um, i only wanted to do things that that came easily and And what about like I mean, another dimension of this, I, I know you, I, just because I think this is a really important point for people who are new to the field, like, was it also, I mean, there's hard and unpleasant, but there's all, was it also, I think for a lot of people, the other thing is, include, especially people who, you know, like you, who, for whom the classwork came relatively easily and, you know, obviously had some talent at it, that the, the also the fact that, you know, the, the answer's not in the back of the book. I mean, yes. you know, the, the professor doesn't even necessarily know it. I mean, you, totally. you that sort of uncertainty it's not just that it's hard, it's that you're really that's on your right. own in that way. Yes, that, that's right. And I felt very much on my own. And so that's right. I think it was really both of those things um, that I wasn't really sure even like what task to do. And then even if I did, if it, you know, involved, you know, like programming a computer, that wasn't something I had done. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have the confidence that I have now to just take on, you know, learn a completely new skill for the sake of, of getting something done. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I sort of came back to campus and was teaching and you know still learning, but still really struggling to make progress in research. And and at the same time that was happening, I was starting to get more, you know, um uh Rich Muller, the physicist who now has been working in earth sciences for a number of years. Oh um, yeah. you know, so he's at Berkeley and he taught a course called Physics for Future Presidents. And so instead of physics for poets, instead of teaching, it's a survey course, and instead of teaching, um, you know, the exotic physics of relativity and cosmology and quantum field theory and all that, it was sort of really practical physics. Um, yeah. You know, what's the physics of renewable energy and nuclear power and climate change and the electric grid, um, yeah. you know, for people who might want to go on and, and, uh, and you know, be educated about those those things that are, you know, in the newspaper. So I thought it was a neat idea for the class. So I signed up to, to be a TA for it. And I actually TA'd it twice. And that class really opened my eyes. It was really, um, there's a couple of books. There's a textbook and a popular book that are associated with the course. It just opened my eyes to the ways that the physics that I had learned really was the underpinning for all this uh, science and phenomena that was in the newspaper. And so I could take this physics class and learn about, you know, the different kinds of, um, 
hybrid automobiles, you know, and, you know, parallel hybrids versus serial hybrids and, you know, and, uh, and hydrogen cars and the physical issues there. And, you know, do you liquefy the hydrogen or do you just compress it? And it was so cool. It just, it really turned me on. Mm. Uh, and, and at the same time, you know, and this happens to, I think, a lot of um, theoretical physicists, you know, the deeper you get into theoretical physics, especially as you try to find a research problem to work on a frontier problem, it can mm. just feel so untethered to reality. You know, you're like, you're not even really sure what you're working on. And so I was feeling that too. And so I really started to feel a tug towards shifting my focus mm. from really esoteric physics that I was having a hard time getting a handle on. It didn't feel tethered to reality. And I had largely satiated my curiosity about theoretical physics, which is what, why I had really come to graduate school in the first place. You know, I didn't come to grad school to do research. I mean, that sounds very silly because what, what else is one doing a PhD? But I had no idea that that's what a PhD was about. Right. And, you know, I just wanted to take the classes and learn more. Right. And I had learned that stuff. And I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't that curious to learn, you know, the finer details of, of string theory or loop quantum gravity, having, yeah. having understood general relativity and quantum field theory to some degree. Right. So I was just missing all that motivation in physics. And I was excited about applying physics to renewable energy and climate climate change. And so after a couple of years back in the physics department, I, uh, David Romps had just arrived and I was looking for something to do that summer because I didn't have any funding. So I met with him and then I also applied for an internship at the Rand Corporation, the think tank. Uh -huh. Yeah. And they had projects on renewable energy and, and I ended up getting a, a summer internship with them, which was terrific. But it was funny. The, um, the internship was in Pittsburgh at their Pittsburgh office, uh, which was a blast. And so that summer, this was summer of 2010 or 2011, I think, hmm. I, I moved to Pittsburgh for the summer and I had met David Romps like a few months earlier and we just had one casual meeting and I didn't follow up with him because I got this Rand gig. But I got to Pittsburgh and I was, you know, renting a little studio apartment, subletting it. I was all by myself in a new city and I was kind of just very far from my, my normal environment. And it was so funny. I think with, with all that distance from the life I'd been living, it was like my second night there and I was just sitting at the dinner table, you know, eating by myself. And all of a sudden it hit me that I should just quit theoretical physics and see if I could go work for that David Romps guy that I had talked to. Uh, right. earlier that and year. he must've been quite young and new there at that time. He, he was, I mean, he was, uh, yeah, I think in his early thirties. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he was so fresh faced that I think he would get mistaken for a student all the time. I mean, were you his first student or must have been close to it? I was. I was. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So yeah. So I, so I did that internship and then, um, and then came back and, uh, and started working with him. You know, he was what I needed in terms of someone who was sort of hands on enough to really um, identify what I needed to do to move forward and then really push me um, yeah. to do it. Well, and he came um, from physics also. He did. He did. It's, you know, so we had, yeah. we had a lot in common that way. I mean, I think even his PhD was in some other kind. I mean, he didn't switch to earth science until after his PhD, did he? Or did Correct. He, no, he did, a, he did a PhD in string theory at Harvard. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing was that, you know, by the time I started working for him, I, I, I had realized that anything I might want to do in the world, whether it was some kind of like congressional fellowship and be like a science advisor or something like that, or work on science policy, Anything I wanted to do, I was going to need the PhD. Like I, I had yeah. finally come around to realizing that. You know, I'd bounced around enough in life 
to know that I just couldn't do that again. And yeah. my, in my first year working with David, you know, Eric and I found out um, that we were pregnant and that uh, oh, yeah. we were going to have a kid together. Yeah. And so I just knew like, you know, this was it. You know, I was so you got married when you were in the circus or shortly after that or? Uh, yeah, a little bit afterwards. Okay. <laughs> so then, and I, I think I met you when you were still a student. Yes. And you were working on, um, we should say a little bit about what you're working on. We don't have to go deep into right. it, but, um, but it was some very sophisticated modeling and diagnostics of deep convection. Uh, if I remember correctly, that's right. So I was doing, you know, a PhD with David was in, you know, uh, cloud resolving modeling, high resolution atmospheric modeling, looking at the dynamics of clouds, you know, motivated by the fact that they're the big source of uncertainty and, and climate projections. And uh, yeah, so it was pretty um, kind of detailed stuff. And, uh, and yeah, and I think Adam, you and I met at the, well, we met, you came to visit Berkeley once and we met briefly, but then we hung out a bit at the, on a glacier at the clouds and climate summer school in the Oh, right. I remember that. Yeah. Right. No, but I remember reading in Berkeley too. Cause I, yeah. 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 Okay. And so you were simulating clouds on the computer in a lot of detail. And if I remember... Yeah high resolution. And I remember there was some tracer transport involved. You're sort of following, was there some of that you were doing entrainment or following the air masses around, or am I remembering that wrong? No, I wasn't doing that. I was focused oh. on, uh, aggregated convection. So, so when the clouds oh, kind okay. of clumped together, um, which has kind of become a hot topic uh, on the last five, 10 years. Oh yes. Um, and, uh, just trying to understand, um, some of the basic dynamics of that, you know, why did it, why did the the size of the atmospheric patch you were simulating influence that? Um, questions like that. So, and did you actually you actually switch departments and enrolled in earth science to do this? Or? No, actually, the way it worked out, I stayed a physics uh, student, and David was my outside advisor. Okay. And um, and so the the degree was in physics, and and that's actually a theme we could touch on later. I, I still feel that in many ways, I I still feel like a physicist in a lot of ways, and. You know, yeah, and that was sort of bro. consistent with that. You know, the relationship between these different quantitative sciences is interesting because it's totally, you know, unintelligible to the average outside person. But like, you know, the difference between physics and mathematics that you talked about, I mean, a person on the street can't tell the difference with, you know, talk to the yeah. physicists and mathematicians. To them, it's, you know, it's a big deal. And the same thing with earth sciences. I mean, I think a lot of us come from physics to some degree or another. For me, I was undergrad, so I didn't stick with it as long as you did. But I mean, yeah. a lot of us have some degree of physics training, but there's... There is a difference, I think, like, so people who have a training in physics and move into other sort of more applied fields that have a, you know, that are related to physics, there's an interesting dynamic. And it depends, I think, on when people make the switch and also just on their personalities. But, you know, you're somebody who my view of it is that you have this sort of physics training in the way of thinking, but you've moved completely into the, into our field. And yes and learned all the details and the, read the literature and, you know, yep. inhabit it completely. But, you know, there are some people who, I mean, there's a certain, physicists have a reputation for a certain kind of arrogance that yep. they, that, that, you know, and I think for the people who don't make the shift completely, you know, there's still a little bit of, I'm a physicist, so your stuff looks easy to me. And if you haven't figured <laughs> it out, you must not be very smart. And yeah, you know, and the, and that's that's a that's a thing that happens. Um, yes, 
and uh, I don't know why I'm saying that. You, I mean, you didn't. For that doesn't seem to be your your situation, <laughs> but you know. Um, but so when you say yeah. you you know you think of yourself as a physicist, I mean, yeah, that's fine. I mean, our the whole field is a branch of applied physics, really. Yeah, that's right. R- right. That's so, right. I mean, there's and, nothing. Yeah, and and only and only partly and only sort of like very internally, you know, because um, you're absolutely right. Like it, you know. I do consider myself a climate scientist and um, an atmospheric scientist, and I have moved completely, you know, into the field. And I mean, I work at GFDL, you know, sort of like in some senses, you know, one of the birthplaces of modern climate science. You know, sort of geophysical of fluid dynamics lab at Princeton, New Jersey. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. So the geophysical fluid dynamics lab, which is, you know, is, I, I think is the first climate modeling center in the world, and uh, and has its roots in some of the very first computer simulations in the atmosphere that also happened in Princeton. Right. Um, so it's really an old, old institution um, in the field. So yeah, but, uh, but there are times where I feel like I'm sort of straddling worlds sometimes a little bit, kind of in much the same way that when I wrote that textbook, I felt like I was, I was a physicist, not really a mathematician, but I had learned enough mathematics and was trying to kind of straddle worlds a little bit, you right. know? Um, and so sometimes I feel like that as someone who's had physics training, but is now working completely in climate right, science. Right. But these are worlds that have a well-established, you know, bridge between them. So it's not, you know, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So when did you finish your PhD? I can't remember. So that was in, yeah, in 2016. Okay. Very good. So you wrote some papers on self-aggregation of convection. And... Well, one paper on that and then moved on to other things, but all within the domain of, of, um, sort of detailed cloud resolving atmospheric modeling. Is there anything more we should say about the content of those or? Not necessarily. I mean, uh, I think I did, you know, make a transition as my PhD wore on to trying to do things that were sort of more fundamental or had a little bit more of a pencil and paper component to try to mm-hmm. connect my physics upbringing to things yeah. I wanted to understand about the atmosphere. And that's definitely been a theme. Yeah. Uh, throughout my work. And so, so that, that transition did happen as a grad student. And, you know, and when I, when I started with David, you know, it was so hard to make the transition. It was so hard to become computer literate and run atmospheric models. And I really missed the elegance of physics and the atmosphere is so messy. And, um, and it was such a struggle to pull something tangible or elegant or true in some deeper sense out of it. I really struggled with that. And so for a while, I wasn't sure I would continue on in the field. You know, my first couple of years with David, I thought, man, mm. I'll just get my PhD and then I'll go get a, you know, congressional fellowship and do science policy or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But as time wore on and I was able to sort of have more of my own ideas that were a little, you know, truer to who I was, uh, and, then it, and then they eventually started to work, um, then I started to think, well, this is actually pretty fun and maybe I can make a contribution, you know, being me. And yeah. so then I got excited about continuing on the field. Yeah, that confidence is such an important part of it. Yeah. Absolutely. So you sort of yeah. figure out, you know, obviously you figured out, you know, how to do research in this time. Yes, yes. And, you know, as, and as many PhD students do, you know, there's like year two or three, you just like hit bottom and you get depressed and you think it's never going to work. And then you, you, you work your way through it, you know, and there's, it's, it's just so huge for your confidence and for your faith in yourself to yeah. go through that you know, to come out the other side of it. So you went to Princeton straight from there. Yes. Not mistaken. Went to Princeton straight from there. 
and uh, spent a year at GFDL as a postdoc, uh, working with their atmospheric model and doing similar cloud resolving modeling, uh, springing off my PhD work. But I had a long-term interest in, um, in radiation, actually, in greenhouse gas radiation, so the greenhouse effect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have these computer codes, uh, radiation codes, that can calculate the greenhouse effect to incredible accuracy. But I never felt I had an intuitive feeling for what these radiation computer codes were doing. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, it's complicated. You know, there's a whole spectrum of radiation and different greenhouse gases are operating, water vapor or carbon dioxide or ozone, and they all have their different properties and, and, their, and their spectroscopic properties and how they absorb radiation. There's, there's a lot of detail in there and a lot of quantum mechanics. So in that sense, it's maybe not surprising that it's hard to get intuition for it, but I just yearned for some kind of gut level feel for the aggregate influence of these gases you know, on the atmosphere. And in reading radiation textbooks or taking radi radiation courses, I, I, didn't, I, was, I was missing that. You know? I'd learned sort of like the, the fundamentals of the quantum mechanics, but then that connecting that to you know, how big the CO2 forcing is, you know, how big the, the heat trapping is when you double CO2, you know, it's a number, it's something like four watts per meter squared. Where does that number come from? How, how, is there a simple way to think about it? I could never get that from any things I read or any of the talks I went to. Or, you know, another question was about, you know, global rainfall. It turns out that the, and this is something I know you've, you've worked with too, Adam, but the amount of rainfall that, you know, averaged over the globe is actually connected to how much radiation greenhouse gases emit. Every time a raindrop forms, it actually releases heat into the atmosphere, the same heat you have to put in uh, to the ocean to get the water to evaporate. You get back when the water condenses to form a raindrop. And then that heat is radiated out to space by the greenhouse gas molecules. So there's this actually beautiful and close connection between radiation and, and rain. And people have shown that if you, know, if you could understand radiation, then you could constrain rainfall. And so I wanted to know, you know, could you constrain that, that total amount of uh, radiation that these greenhouse gases were, were emitting? So I had these questions on my mind, and I started to work on them with David in my last year of my PhD, and I brought them to Princeton, and then I, got a, I, I had the good fortune to get a postdoc actually in the Princeton Geosciences Department, and it was one of these postdocs that um, you know, gave you complete carte blanche to do whatever you wanted. Mm. And so then I kind of switched tacks and learned to run these radiation codes uh, and started to answer some of these questions. And so that was sort of, you know, me adding a whole other piece to my, uh, I guess, to my research portfolio or whatever in, in that time. Yeah, this is a great piece of work. I, I want to talk about it a little more. But first, you sort of described it in broad terms what the problem is. But can you articulate what the basic result and conclusion is out of this? I mean, what you learned before, yeah. we, before we talk about the significance of it? Yeah, so the thing that was good, the thing that was missing for me in my education was that when you learned about radiation, they would sort of give you this toy model called a gray model, where you assume that the absorption properties of the atmosphere don't depend on the frequency of the radiation. So all frequencies behave the same in this model, and that's a huge simplification, and then you can write down lots of nice solutions to things. So the frequency um, is just for, just to translate a little because this is a really technical subject, is like different colors, you know, if for the visible spectrum, that's there's right. like yellow, green, red, blue, those are different frequencies of radiation and each one interacts with the mat with matter, with, you know, gases in the air differently. 
And then when you get to the infrared, there's also different frequencies, even though you can't see them. And exactly. so that's a complexity of radiative transfer that whatever the, however the radiation is passing through the air and getting absorbed or re-emitted, whatever it's doing is, is different at every frequency and there's gazillions of frequencies. And so these gray models sort of wash that all out and assume that there's one frequency or a couple of frequencies or something. So, so that's one complexity exactly. that has to be dealt with and makes the subject kind of painful. Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, so this, this quote unquote gray model, you know, colorless model, it doesn't distinguish between colors, that's why they call yeah. it gray. It's, it's good for building a, a little bit of intuition, but it, it can't produce numbers. You can't mm. use them to get a reasonable number um, for questions you want to ask. But then when you're, when you're sort of learning radiation, they teach you gray models to build a little bit of intuition. And then there's just this jump to these sophisticated radiation codes and you're just looking at the output and it's kind of very messy and there's all this complicated frequency dependence. And so I, I wondered if there was something in between, a sort of a model that was spectral and that it acknowledged that radiation depends on frequency, that there are colors, quote unquote, in the infrared. But, but it wasn't so complicated and it turned out that you can approximate the, the, the spectral behavior, the frequency dependence of radiation in actually a pretty simple way. Uh, and there's some fine-grained detail that you lose, but there's a lot of the big picture that you capture with this. So it's basically like, you know, instead of assuming that all frequencies behave the exact same, you assume that the variations in frequencies follows a very simple, you know, mathematical um, form that it's sort mm -hmm. of, that it's, that it's an exponential, basically. And, uh, and this actually then opens the door to, um, to being able to write down equations for things like the greenhouse effect from water vapor or carbon dioxide, or how this influences um, you know, the total amount of cooling of the atmosphere and, and precipitation. Um, it opens the door to being able to write down uh, pencil and paper formulas for, for these that you know, are sort of accurate to within 20%, um, but moreover give you some real insight into what's happening. Uh, so that was kind of the general approach in a lot of these papers. And is it possible to articulate what the insights are? Sure. So for CO2 forcing, it turned out that it was incredibly simple, that even though there's so much going on, there's all these frequencies, the frequency dependence is complicated, it turns out that you can, in a quantitative sense, very simply think of when you, if you double the CO2 in the atmosphere, then essentially what's happening is that there's some infrared radiation from the surface that when you double CO2 is now being blocked and absorbed by CO2 in the atmosphere. That's the greenhouse effect, yeah. That's the greenhouse effect. So that, that upwelling surface radiation is blocked, and it actually ends up being replaced, in a certain sense, by much colder, less intense thermal radiation from the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. And because this radiation is thermal in character, the warmer you are, the more intense the radiation is. And this is something that's familiar to everyone. You know, you say something is red hot or white hot. Um, yeah. so, so people already know from if they've ever, you know, looked into the coals in a fireplace or worked with an electric stove uh, or even in a light bulb, right? The hotter something is, the emission is, is less in magnitude. And so you've got less heat radiation coming off the earth and that's the trapping. Right. Um, 
So you can just write down a simple formula that says when I double CO2, I'm just getting an exchange of surface emission for stratospheric emission. And you can just plug in numbers and you get something around four watts per meter squared. And, uh, and then there's a kind of a range of insights that you can, you can kind of go on to derive from that. Yeah. So the basic notion that, you know, you're replacing radiation from the warm surface with radiation from the cold upper atmosphere is, you know, is, has been around for, for a very long time. But what was new here is the ability to, to make a quantitative uh, prediction for that in, in a simple way. I mean, without a big computer code that deals with all the frequencies, um, you know, one, one at a time. And that's, that's and, right. and what's great about this work, I think, is not just that you sort of solved an important problem in a useful way, because, of course, CO2 forcing is such an important thing. And, yeah, the models can compute it, but at some level, it, we really do want to understand it um, and not just say, well, it comes out of the computer. Yeah. Um, is that not only is it... A, is it a great result on an important problem, but nobody really saw it as a problem before you did it. I mean, it's a problem that right. didn't exist. You know, nobody was worrying about this. So in other words, you know, yeah, there are textbook ways of, of learning radiation with pencil and paper, but they're not accurate for anything. And then there's the computer codes that give the actual answer. And everybody sort of knows what the answer is because it hasn't really changed that much in, you know, many decades. So everybody kind of thinks they know it already. And nobody worried about the fact that there's nothing in between. As you said, there's nothing that allows one to sort of, you know, make bridge the gap between the simple thing that's inaccurate and the accurate thing that's not simple. And there is a strong history in our field of doing that in the fluid dynamical part of the field. Yes. But the radiation part of the field is, is, is part of the field that has for many decades been seen as kind of solved and boring. You know, everybody kind of knows, yeah, you put more CO2, it gets warmer. And there are some parts of the field that are that have been active. I mean, the, uh, understanding clouds and how those interact with radiation. And, you know, there's a there's a whole engineering part of the field of making the, the computer codes more efficient and more accurate, which is always a good thing. But this space you were working in did not exist. I mean, I, you had zero competition because nobody <laughs> thought this was a problem, right? So, so in other words, the great thing about this work in my humble, you know, estimation is not just that you did it, but that you sort of out of nowhere, like could visualize that this was something that should be done. Right. right. And I often, I often tell students who are like struggling with things like, where should I go to grad school or what should I work on or what, you know, these kind of things. I, what I tell them is that like the thing that really distinguishes the best scientists from the, you know, not, not as great scientists, it's not the ability to solve problems. It's the define and choose problems. And we don't teach people how to do that really. You don't right. get a chance to do it until at best you're a grad student, maybe not even then, because a lot of times yeah. the advisor tells you what to do. And so like any opportunity to learn that is really valuable. But somehow this is a real, I mean, this is in a, to an unusual degree was a self-defined problem in an area that right. is simultaneously important and yet nobody was worrying about it. Right, right. So I well, just really, I, I like I, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, and, and it's very uh, just encouraging and validating uh, for me and, you know, and, and, and the, the handful of collaborators I have that I've been working on this with, you know, because, you know, sometimes the response I get is, is, is you know, what you were describing, but other times it's like, well, we know this. And so like, so what, um, right. you know, or we can already compute it. And, and sometimes I struggle with, you know, is, is this work valuable? Is it, you know, um, is it landing in the community? Or am I, you know, am I just talking to myself and a handful of um, of people who feel similarly? Um, 
you know, getting back to a little bit of my story of, you know, in some ways feeling like a physicist and, you know, even though I'm very much a practicing climate scientist, you know, in that first year or two after switching to working with David, you know, not only was I uncomfortable with learning the methods of the field, but then when I was taking the coursework, you know, I just, I missed, I missed textbooks that had a lot of equations instead of a lot of words and pictures. And the, the experience of having been so steeped in physics pedagogy, where, you know, the subject has been developed for hundreds of years, the pedagogy is so developed, you know, how you learn the material and what derivations you see and when and the homework problems. I mean, it's just so many people have worked on it for so long and climate is just young relative to, you know, the standard physics curriculum. Yeah. Um, but then, but then reading climate textbooks, I was just yearning for, for the type of, you know, understanding that has been developed over centuries in physics. And so I think then when I switched to climate, you know, I could almost like taste what it would be like to have it because I'd seen Mm -hmm. it so much in physics and I spent so, it spent so many years just doing these homework problems. (laughs) Yeah. It's sort of, it's sort of Talmudic. I mean, it's, uh, there is that tradition, you know, and the sort of layers and layers of interpretation that uh, people have added and yeah, totally. And, That's right. Yeah, it, 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 and its own language has its own language and its own. I mean, but right. I think the other thing, you know, your your reaction to my uh, admiration of this piece of work that you did, your reaction to it is brings up another thing that I think, you know, more general context that's worth talking about a little, which is, you know, this is not unique to you. I mean, there there is a tension in the field between simulation and understanding. That's been. Yep. That's been around for a long time and has had a lot of papers written about it. There's a great one or two by Isaac Held, who's uh, at your institution and has been, you know, one of the people who's articulated this most clearly. But it's it goes back to the beginnings of the field as a modern science in the early 20th century that, I mean, we're ultimately in applied science, right? We're doing this to predict the weather, predict the climate. I mean, that's how we justify all our funding and everything. And there's no question about it, but it does have its roots in theoretical physics and applied mathematics. And and there is great value in understanding things. And, and in many points in the field's history, there's been a coupling between understanding and prediction. They're not always yes. coupled, but oftentimes right. understanding things helps you predict them better. And then other times That's it's right. not clear that it does, but there's a substantial part of the field where either because of their own inclinations or because they have physics training or whatever that believes, has the faith that understanding is important, even if yeah. it's not always clear what the connection is to prediction. And that tension, I think, if, you know, I think there's sort of a consensus and you've, you've also written about this, you know, very, yeah. very articulately that th- that tension is just getting stronger because yeah. the, the, the capabilities in, in prediction and in observation for that matter, I mean, the sort of more applied capabilities of our science, which is ultimately our excuse for existing, just get more and more because they're driven by technology. I mean, whether it's bigger computers that make the models more accurate because they have higher resolution or satellites that, you know, make the observations better, that inform them, all that stuff gets better and better almost on its own. I mean, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to downplay it. I don't want to, of course, there's a lot of smart people who are doing the work to make that happen. It's not, it doesn't really happen on its own, but it's technology has its own kind of momentum and okay. understanding sort of can get dragged along for the ride, but it doesn't really have to. And it takes a real conscious effort. So there's still sort of an intelligentsia in the field, and there probably always will be that that values understanding. So I don't think the type of work you're doing, I don't think that I'm the only person, as you say. I mean, you've right. got, I'm sure you've gotten this reaction of from other people. But 
it is a real tension that's there. And I think, um, you know, we have to sort of keep making the case for it. I mean, especially now with, I mean, this has been happening for decades just because of computers getting faster, but now with machine learning and artificial intelligence, which has now right. caught fire in our field in the last sort of five years. I mean, nobody yep. was doing that stuff and or almost nobody was doing that in weather and climate science a few years ago. Now it's the hottest right. things, you know, in, in a long time. And it really does yeah. have great power for some applications, but it doesn't yeah. for others. And, and it's almost, I mean, I, I'm going to belie myself as sort of an old cranky, you know, guy here who doesn't really do this stuff, but it, you know, it, to me, machine learning and artificial intelligence are almost antithetical to human learning and right. non-artificial intelligence. I mean, it's almost there in the name, right? I mean, it, yes, that's right. <laughs> it, 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 they're not antithetical, but they don't necessarily help. I mean, they're, you're, yeah. you're letting the computer look at data and teach itself how to make a prediction. And except for setting up that process at the beginning, the computer almost doesn't need you. And so I, I've been involved in conversations just today about, you know, how do we make the case for what's the most important research directions in our field when we're trying to get funding from wh whoever, Right. And, you know, everybody's so excited about about this stuff. So I think the, you know, this need to make the case about about understanding is is not going to go away. It's almost, you know, yeah. I think the need for it is, if anything, is growing. Yeah. Because yeah. there is all this stuff that we have to keep up with, you know, and make yes. sense of. Yes. But at the same yes. time, the apparent need for it seems to be getting less because you can do so much without yep. understanding. You know, it's like yeah. Facebook, you know, can recognize your face, right? It doesn't need to know who you are. It doesn't need to know what your face is. It just needs to have seen it before and it can do it. And that's amazing. But like the the, the person is, is is absent from that process almost yeah. except for, you yeah. know, being a facilitator. So I think this is, um you know, this is an important a case we have to keep making yeah. you know, as, as, as time goes on. And I still think, though, it's true that that within the field, most people, I think, still appreciate that this is true and people see some piece of work that helps them understand something. I think everybody, you know, who's close to it kind of gets it. You know what I mean? But right. sometimes it's hard to articulate it, especially to people outside, what that value is. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I mean, there's sort of a, a few topics, you know, come to mind. Um, one, which we can maybe dig into a little, you know, more deeply in a moment is, you know, one thing we should talk about is, you know, climate communications and outreach. And, and one thing I've done is sort of engage, try to engage climate skeptics. And, you know, one of the things that gets their ire up and which they're suspicious of is this faith in computer models when you yeah. don't always understand how the models work or what the output is. Right. And, uh, you know, we say, we say, oh, the climate sensitivity is X and the feedbacks are Y, but we can't, you know, ballpark these numbers on a blackboard. And, and I feel like, you know, that level of understanding would increase confidence um, and would help us make our case, you know, to people who are a little wary of the models. The other thing, and this is something that Isaac, you know, articulated in his 2005 essay, and I'm not sure that, you know, the essay has meant a lot of things to, to different people. I'm not sure this particular aspect has been fully digested by the community, but one thing he, he gets at towards the end is how important understanding is for model development. Yeah. Um, because you're, you're developing a model, you see behavior that surprises you, and if your mental model of what the model is doing and how the components interact, you know, isn't good enough, then it's very difficult to understand what the model is doing and figure out how to, you know, address deficiencies or pathologies because there's a million so, things going on. Yeah. So this is so important. So, but let's just, let's just say now, maybe this is a good point to interject that. So you started as a postdoc in Princeton, how many years ago? Four years ago? Four, a little over four. Okay. And so 
at, at this lab, Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab is a place where one of the handful of U.S. national climate models is developed. So these climate models are very complicated computer codes that simulate the atmosphere and ocean, et cetera, very realistically and um, are used for the IPCC reports and all kinds of other things. And so that's the, the single probably biggest thing that goes on at this lab, yep. although it has a long history of doing other kinds of work, including very fundamental theoretical work. So you're engaged yeah. in all these different uh, dimensions, and that's the perspective. You're talking about that process, which involves quite a lot of scientists of, of putting together this very complicated piece of software to simulate the climate system, and and then how you understand, you know, what it's doing, and whether when it makes some prediction that looks weird, whether that might be right or wrong, or you exactly. know, if it disagrees with the other models or whatever. And so that's what you've been doing, and that's the sort of tension that we're talking about in this Isaac Held essay it was written in 2005 on the relationship between simulation and understanding. And he makes the parallel between climate models at different levels of complexity, you know, the full on one that we just been talking about and much simpler ones that are stripped down and aren't good for prediction, but are you know good for understanding. He makes the parallel between that and biology where they have, you, know, you can study the human being, that's the complicated organism you want to understand, but it's too complicated. So you can also think about a mouse, which is simpler, or a fruit fly, which is simpler, or a bacteria, which is even simpler. And you sort of, certain things are common across those organisms and certain things aren't, you know, and sort of you build up the level of complexity. And, and there's a history of doing that with different um, climate models. So, and you're very much, you know, inheriting that tradition and, and working and, you know, pushing that way of working forward. But Absolutely. I, I want to, well, I, I want to get to the climate skeptic thing, but, and we could spend some time on that. Is there anything else we should get to before that or? Yeah, I mean, one other reaction to, um, you know, this tension is that, you know, I mean, so you mentioned a couple of times, you know, our reason for existing is that, you know, the world needs us to understand the climate better to predict and project. Yeah. And, and that is undoubtedly, you know, it's, it's a huge motivation and it's, you know, probably where the vast majority of our funding for the field is, is probably tied to considerations of that point. But, you know, but other fields, you know, many fields in physics don't have such a practical you know, angle, and they get funded anyways, you know, and right. they think of themselves, you know, just in scientific terms. And so I do, I do wonder about that, you know, is, you know, between so much of our funding having an applied bent, and so much of the field's direction and timelines being governed by the IPCC. I mean, as a field, we, we, we owe it to society to be thinking about all these practical questions. But does it sometimes skew the field's you know, or, or, or nudge the field towards those practical questions, you know, to, to maybe a degree that's, you know, that is maybe slightly to the field's detriment, where, you yeah. know, if we didn't have all those pressures, we'd have maybe a little bit more of a balance uh, between, you know, people doing the applied stuff and theoreticians and, you know, crosstalk between them. You know, sometimes in doing more theoretical work, I feel really in a stark minority. And I, and I wonder about the benefit of that for the field kind of long term. Right. Well, I think it's, you know, I get that. And I, I have had many moments in my life of feeling the same way. But, you know, if we were a pure scientific field without these applications, we'd be a much smaller field. So in some sense, it's the price of success, right? It's like yeah. you have your little jazz combo and you're playing the little <laughs> clubs down the street, you know, and you can do whatever you want. You know, you can play uh, you know, free jazz or whatever, because you're only getting paid 50 bucks anyway. And nobody, you know, you have your small devoted following, and you're sleeping on people's couches. And then it's like, if you get the big record deal, and you hire the orchestra, you know, and you're touring around, well, now you have an infrastructure, you have to support you have, a, you know, a lot of fans you have, you know, it's that's, I think that's what it is, you know, that that success brings 
pressures and, you know, commitments. And I mean, I think about this a lot as I'm writing proposals, like there's some, there's some grant proposals you write where it's like this, you know, the, the worst thing you can do is write the proposal and get rejected. But the second worst thing might be that you get it because when you really think about it, it's like, well, now I'm going to have to do this, you know, and my life would be simpler if I didn't have to do that thing, you know, and it's, right. um, right. And I think that's what, I think that's what it is. You know, we, we're happy to, you know, say we're important and the world needs us, but you know, then it, it can distort other priorities. Yep. So, all right. We, uh, so we're going to talk about the, the, the climate skeptics. So you mentioned it briefly, how maybe we'd can be able to convince the skeptics better if, the, if, you know, we weren't so reliant on, on complicated computer models. I think it's a very small subset of skeptics for whom that's true. I agree. But, but, I, I uh, agree with that. <laughs> but, um, okay, so tell me about your um, your actual activities in this sphere because this is a different, uh, different yes. set of, uh, of activities. Right, this is a different, different piece of my scientific life, I guess. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I mean, I guess I've always in, enjoyed public speaking and speaking to a broader audience. And I guess where, where and when did it all start? I, I guess it was coming to Princeton and, you know, three months after coming to Princeton, Trump got elected. And then Will Happer, moment. who, yes, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Princeton, it's, it's funny. I mean, someone actually, someone from the Chronicle of Higher Education wrote a whole article about this. And I'm also a part of that article. But Princeton's a funny place in that it is both a, a place that one could argue you know, modern climate science was born uh, in terms of, you know, this computational approach towards it. But it's also a locus of climate skepticism. And there's, uh, you know, a number of high profile climate skeptics, outspoken climate skeptics who are from Princeton, most notably um, Freeman Dyson, who's, who passed away in the last year, uh, as well as Will Happer, uh, a physicist on campus, and, and, so, and, yeah. and, and others. Uh, those are just maybe the two highest profile, but there, there are others as well. And, and with Trump's election, you know, there was at a certain point, uh, you know, became clear that, uh, you know, Will Happer was up for, you know, position potentially, you know, in the White House, and he didn't end up taking a position, you know, advising, mm. I think, the National Security Council. And, and I had been aware of debates, you know, both on campus involving Will and others about climate science. Uh, and I'd also heard about particular claims that Will was making about radiative transfer, and some, some of the people at Berkeley who I worked with who were radiation specialists had sort of told me about this, uh, controversies about the CO2 greenhouse effect. And, and once I got to Princeton, you know, I was, it became clear that, you know, the climate scientists and Will were not talking to each other. Will had never been to GFDL. People in the climate really? community did not feel like talking to Will would be productive. Yeah. And so Will was making claims about climate science, and there was just very little engagement uh, to try and so sort things out. And so I ended up reaching out to him and sort of presenting myself as a fellow physicist and, you know, inviting him to a talk of mine and just, you know, kind of opening, trying to open the door to some conversation. And, uh, and he came to my talk and then he invited me to my office to chat, to his office to chat later. And I met with him a handful of times and had incredible discussion. I mean, I, you know, I have papers where I thank him in the acknowledgements, you know, maybe it's paper that's submitted because I learned so much from just handful of meetings, you know, talking about just, I mean, the, the nitty gritty of the CO2 molecule. I mean, I've never spoken to someone who knows the CO2 molecule with the depth and intimacy that Will does. And it was just incredible. And I, it was just an awesome experience to soak that up, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But he's also, you know, quite soured on the climate science community. And, you know, we talked a lot about that. But, you know, he's making specific claims about the greenhouse effect from CO2, you know, basically saying that there was a certain physical effect 
that affects how CO, the CO2 molecule absorbs this infrared radiation we've been talking about. And he was saying there's a certain physical effect uh, having to do with how molecules collide with each other that he thought that um, climate modelers you know, weren't incorporating in their models. But then when I talked to the people at GFDL and others, they said, no, no, we've known about this for decades. And so Will had some calculations on the topic. And so we redid those calculations at GFDL and showed that the way, the way GFDL does things and the way other climate models do things agree with Will's calculation. And uh, yes, if we don't account for this, for this effect having to do with molecular collisions, if we don't account for it, yes, there are errors. But, but the community has been accounting for them for 30 years. And I sent him you know, several references. Uh, and I pointed him to the exact paragraph where it says, you know, we know about this effect and we account for it in this way. And he eventually, you know, I mean, he's still very much a skeptic as far as I know, but he stopped making this particular claim in public. Um, mm. And so I did feel like eventually we came to see eye to eye on this, on this one piece of science, uh, certainly not on climate science as a whole, and that's okay. But that was, uh, it was one way in which I tried to sort of participate in the broader discussion, especially since someone like Will, you know, is outspoken. He's got impeccable credentials, a long history of both scientific accomplishment and service in government. Uh, he headed the DOE Office of Science for several years. And so he has outsized influence, you know, which was, again, made manifest when he, you know, went to the White House. And I just felt like it was important to engage some of these people, you know, in, in, in earnest conversation and not just dismiss them as skeptics or people who refuse to... Um, you know, to acknowledge the consensus of the IPCC. And remind me, what was his field originally? His particular uh, atomic, research area? Atomic physics. So I think he's done a number of things, but all within the field of atomic physics and the quantum mechanics of atoms. But he's, he's worked a lot with CO2 molecule and the, the, the infrared properties of CO2 and, and radiative transfer. And, uh, you know, his knowledge of that uh, is so deep that, um, you know, he... He proposed the mechanisms for what has now become known as adaptive optics, which is a key tool that astronomers use to sort of see through the atmosphere without all the interference from atmospheric variations. Um, Will came up with a sort of an ingenious way to use what he, you know, uh, what is known about molecules and radiation uh, to correct for this. Um, right. This is one of the but both things. of these guys seem to me to be, I mean, him and Dyson both seem to me to be classic examples of the sort of physicist arrogance we talk about because they're obviously brilliant guys you know n nobody can argue that um dyson i think had nobel prize didn't he i can't remember uh, he never did but he was very he intimately never, involved with work yeah, that close enough nobel prize. <laughs> i mean close enough to no, totally close enough like he should have gotten one you know a lot right of no no that. question brilliant brilliant physicists know a lot of things that are kind of relevant to climate but Rather than really dig in and try to learn the subject properly, there's sort of they just sort of feel like they must already know it better than we do. You know what I mean? It's sort of like a, there's sort of sort of dismissiveness that, yeah. it, you know, and I and in, in Happer's case, it seems to have something to do with his political inclinations. Dyson, I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know what his, you know, but I think the most remarkable part of the story, though, is that you know, Happer's sitting on the Princeton campus for decades and decades, never goes to GFDL. Everybody in GFDL knows he's there and thinks there's no point in talking to this guy. We're not going to make any headway. And somehow you as the fresh postdoc think, <laughs> I can do this. 
<laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go solve this. I'm gonna talk to this guy, and it's all gonna be great. I mean, I guess you, you know, you kind of worked to some extent. It sounds like. I mean, obviously, you didn't completely win him over. I mean, that, if you'd done that, then that would have. I mean, then yeah. I would really, you know, you would you you should get a Nobel Prize if that yeah for something wow. if that happened. But um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, clearly you must have known that this was a somewhat you know quixotic uh, journey, but. Yes. But you must have really believed in the principle of, of it. I mean, um, absolutely. I, I knew it was chaotic. And I and when I mentioned it to people, you know, like one advisor I mentioned it to, and he said, that gives me a stomach ache. And another person <laughs> I mentioned it to said, I don't know why you'd want to do that. And I, I have to mention by name Rob Sokolow, um, who's at Princeton, who was the one person who encouraged me because he uh-huh. was friendly with Will. He's someone who's really good at seeing multiple points of view simultaneously, and he really encouraged me to reach out to him. And so I have to, you know, name that debt of gratitude to Rob, um, uh-huh. because it wasn't entirely my idea. You know, he and I were talking about skeptics and talking yeah. about Will, and and he was one of the people who really said you should talk to him. But you know, those those various advisors that I had who you know rolled their eyes or gave them a stomachache or they, they didn't think it was a good idea. You know, one by one later after it all went down you know they they turned to me and said you know i'm actually glad you did that and so that you know that felt good and for me and and i think this maybe you know uh, transitions to a broader conversation about our about our responsibility and obligations as scientists at a time like this you know being experts in a field that's you know uh, there's some controversy around less controversy every day which is great but it's also front page news I just felt like, you know, I'm here at this Ivy League institution and I'm doing this research, you know, but is that really the the scope of what I can contribute? You know, there's this dialogue yeah. happening, you know, on the front page. I mean, you know, Happer's joining the White House was like front page news. Yeah. And, you know, is it really beyond the scope of, 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 of my ambition to to try and participate in that? And I just felt, I felt the opposite. I felt like, you know, if, if, if taxpayers and, you know, are going to, are going to fund me and I'm going to learn all this stuff about climate. And then I'm not going to like, you know, come back up out of my rabbit hole to, to try and influence the bigger conversation. You know, am I really doing all I can? And so that was a big part of my motivation for yeah. you know, crossing the street to go talk to Happer. And I know you feel the same way. I mean, we've had, we've had beers over this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Well, I haven't gone the same direction as you. I don't think I have the, it, it does give me a stomach ache thinking about this particular thing but but so but but i admire you for it so so then tell me about your larger project that you embarked yeah. on after, you know as, out of this yeah so um so i started to give public talks you know called you know climate science how do we know what we know trying to focus on evidence you know and trying to de-emphasize the consensus on climate change i mean it's a very useful fact for people who don't know it but for people who do know there's a consensus but aren't convinced by that, I think that you know beating them over the head with it, if they've already heard it, I think can backfire. And so I wanted to try an approach where I just focused on the evidence. How do we know the Earth is warming? How do we know it's CO2-driven? How do we know the CO2 increases come from, from human beings? So I started to experiment with that and gave that talk a bunch. And then around then maybe a year later, um, some good friends and colleagues had the idea to... Um, to put together a sort of similar talk and then um, and then travel around and get FaceTime with people and travel outside of the sort of like liberal bubbles of academia and college towns to places that are further flung or more rural or just more, you know, further from these academic centers. And not only try to share a little bit of what we know about climate science, 
would also get FaceTime because especially in the 2016 campaign, political campaign, presidential campaign, it felt like a big stumbling block for acceptance of climate science was that climate scientists were perceived as these you know, coastal blue blood elites with their PhDs who are just, you know, from a different America than people who, you know, maybe are more conservative or maybe live in more rural areas or maybe are more inclined to vote for Trump, however you want to, you know, classify um, people who are a little more skeptical of of the climate consensus. So we wanted to get out there and get FaceTime with them so that people could meet a climate scientist. And, you know, we'd give like a half hour talk and then just have free discussion, you know, uh, off the stage, just mingling around in the audience. So we, we called the project Climate Up Close to try and emphasize, you know, the importance of this face-to-face conversation and, and connecting on a, on a personal level. So summer 2019, we spent a week in Pennsylvania, uh, mm-hmm. in, central, in central Pennsylvania, uh, giving talks like this. We probably did like, I don't know, 11 events in, in a week uh, and traveling around to all these, you know, smaller towns, you know, Gettysburg and Harrisburg and giving these talks. How'd it go? Yeah, how did it go? Um, it was a mixed bag. Our audiences really varied. You know, sometimes we had more skeptical people who really appreciated us focusing on the evidence and not really explicitly trying to alarm people, but just trying to say, here's what we know, here's what's uncertain. And we tried to debunk myths on sort of both sides of the argument. So, you know, obviously, you know, like people in the Trump administration were questioning the consensus on climate change. And so we tried to present the evidence against that, you know, showing that that was wrong. But, you know, this is also shortly after the IPCC, I think, one and a half degree report came out. And I think a lot of the reporting on that report, you know, ended up distorting some of the messages. So you ended up with this message in the, in the media that we've got 10 years before we reach a tipping point, And then it's like yeah. climate catastrophe is going to kick in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's not what the report says. But this, this messaging had become really widespread. And we wanted to debunk that, too, and just try to build a center on how we interpret climate science, you know, and get rid of the idea that there's no consensus, but also get rid of the idea that, you know, in 10 years, we're going to go off some climate cliff and, you know, the earth is going to catch fire. We wanted to to debunk both sides of that. Hmm. Oh, you know, probably half of our audience really appreciated that, you know, a more centered approach to the messaging. Mm -hmm. But we ended up talking to a lot, you know, our audiences were largely self-selecting and a lot of them were, you know, I don't know, more liberal or more already, you know, activated on climate. Uh, some of our audiences were, were, you know, were people actively working on the issue. And I think they took issue with us downplaying some of the more alarming messaging that's out there in the media. And they felt like, you're going to take the wind out of our sails. You know, I had one mm. woman come up to me afterwards. She said, I'm going to do presentations on climate in people's living rooms. And she said, I just want to scare the hell out of people. So give me some ammunition. And I really struggled with that. You know, and I still struggle with the approach that we have to scare people to get get movement. You know, are you that. scared? I'm not. I'm not. I mean, my feelings on it are changing, and I'm more scared than I was two years ago. Mm. But I don't feel the impending doom. I mean, the, the changes are going to happen, and there's already places that are feeling it. You know, most definitely, and. You know, and obviously a lot of the extreme events, you know, of just this this year and what's happening right now, you know, there there is a climate component to that, whether you're talking about hurricanes yeah. or wildfires. 
the trouble with extreme mm. weather is that it's very hard to say how much of it is climate and how much of it is all the other factors that go into variability. But we are we do seem to be breaking a lot of records all the time, and that is the kind yeah. of thing that you expect with warming. But it's but it's a tricky business trying to do the attribution. But I do feel that it'll it's it's all going to be it's all going to be gradual, and I also feel the tide turning in terms of public perception, and so. I guess I just have maybe a naive or optimistic faith that these things are going to work themselves out. I can I can feel climate skepticism receding. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So anyway, I so, wish so, I could see it that way. I mean, I think you know. First of all, I think it's great that you're doing this. You know, um, power to you. I guess about the attribution. I mean, it's true that attribution is tricky, and the media sometimes overstates the degree to which we can relate a single extreme weather event to global warming. I think it's likely that a lot of them do have some. Uh, I mean, it's almost certain that some of them do have a climate component. Um, right. I think the fires are egregious. Uh, I think that one's pretty obvious. Um, hurricanes, a little more subtle, but probably there. But I, I mean, the media likes to make a strong case about attribution because yeah. it they think it's going to grab people's attention. But to me, it's not really that relevant because what makes me scared the most at the gut level about climate is the sort of long-term irreversibility of it. You know, yeah. we're making decisions right. now that are going to affect many, many future generations. And yeah. regardless of what, whether, how strongly we can pin something that happens today on it, to me, that's right. not the fundamental issue. You know, if it was yeah. air pollution, you know, air pollution is killing more people now in the world than global warming is right. for sure. Right. But air pollution, you know, if you, if you regulate it and you stop emitting the bad stuff, it's gone in a minute, you know, yep. Climate, it's we're making these long-term decisions. So that so I think the attribution thing is a little bit of a I think we overstate that and we yeah. do that sort of at our own peril because it's one of the more difficult parts of the science. But to me, the moral case for doing something about climate shouldn't really rest much on attribution and of extreme yeah. events in the yeah. present. So that's one thing. The other thing about that the skepticism's receding, I mean, that may be true in the sort of popul global population or even the American population as a whole, but unfortunately there's an entrenched minority yes. that sees differently and they control most of the levers yes. of the power at the government at the moment. So it's, that's kind of, and it doesn't seem to be getting better. I mean, maybe Trump's out, but now, but you know, um, hopefully, you know, but, but, uh, it's not going to make that much difference. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I'm much less, I, I, my fear is, is yeah. deeper. Um, yeah. but anyway, so are you still doing it? Are you still going to keep doing this activity or? Yes. I mean, we're, you know, we're sort of like, you know, meeting right now to try to figure out, you know, especially, you know, in, in the virtual realm we have to operate in, what does this look like going forward? But, but, but we also, you know, we had a, for me personally, and then also our organization is, is doing a little bit of soul searching. And I mean, I'll frame it in terms of myself. It's really more my question. And I'm interested in your take on this too. But the question I'm asking myself right now is as a climate scientist, you know, hoping to contribute to a more fruitful discussion of climate in the political discourse. You know, a couple of years ago, I was thinking, okay, well, maybe we can try and focus on evidence. You know, how do we know what we know? And maybe that's something that mm -hmm. I can share um, with the broader world that would be helpful. Yeah. And what I'm wondering now is, you know, is, is teaching people a few facts about climate, is that still an, or was it, or is, is it still an effective way to, you know, make the dialogue more functional? But when people are so polarized, it's not clear how much, you know, a handful of facts will do right. if 
you know, if beliefs about climate science are tied into beliefs about climate policy, are, are tied into your values and your tribal identity and all that kind of thing. My sense, and this is not just my sense, but this is what a lot of great climate communicators and social scientists say, is that it's much more about use the term tribal identity. I mean, it's just part of a package of views that we hold. That's the polarization, right? We, there's not, it's not like everybody, you know, forms their views independently on different political or social issues by thinking through each one, one at a time. You sort of buy a package deal, you know, you vote Democratic or Republican, you sort of, these, these are a bunch of views that you adopt. And for many people, climate is just one of those. And so the problem of communicating on climate and, and getting any traction on it with those who aren't, you know, don't already take it seriously seems to me about that and not about, yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. there are some people who will be persuaded, but I mean, the, right. you know, as you know, distinguishing climate from weather is tricky and, and even people's, you know, people's sense of what's normal changes over time. There's even a nice paper by um, Fran Moore recently on this. That's about like how people's baseline shifts and they don't remember what normal used to be. Yes, I mean, so I, right. I, I, I guess I'm skeptical that that's what's going to convince. I mean, it may convince some people, but I think to me, my sort of take on it is that the value of what you do, I do think there's great value of what you're doing, whether it's talking about evidence or, or whatever, but I think the value of it is probably not so much in that, you know, there's some magical argument that's going to win people over that they just hadn't heard before, but more just the fact that you're making an effort, you're a relatable yeah. person, you're reaching out, you know, to those yeah. who have different views and just that fact, you know, Catherine Hayhoe says, you know, you have to connect to people on values you have in common. So with the religious people, you say, you yeah. know, the Bible says protect the earth. You look for things that are some shared humanity. Yeah. And I think like on some level, maybe that's the core of what you're doing. It's that willingness to talk to Happer when everybody else just, you know, it makes their stomach hurt. Like, I mean, you, of course you want to say things that are true and you, yeah. you know, the fact that you yeah. actually know what you're talking about is not irrelevant, yeah. right. but I, I thought yeah. maybe that's not the core of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a great point, Adam. And, and, you know, and, and maybe that speaks to, you know, what, you know, me and the climate up close people were, were thinking about in the first place was just that maybe one of the most important things is just to get out there and be with people and be with people in person, you know, take the time out to talk, you know, and maybe which aspects of the science you, you know, you do or don't discuss is, you know, it's important and it matters. Uh, and certainly, you know, our messaging and how we did it, you know, people had reactions to that. Um, but you're right. And a reaction we always got from every audience, no matter what, was, you know, thank you for, you know, because we were people from Berkeley and Princeton and Harvard, you know, out in central PA, you know, giving talks at the library. You know, people yeah, were yeah. like, you know, they just, they were so grateful every time to us for taking the time to do that. And maybe, you know, that is maybe one of the most impactful things. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you know, power to you you know, hope you do keep doing it in some form. Uh, you know, there's probably lessons for, for all of us. I know you've got things you've got to do now. Are, is there anything else we should have talked about that we didn't? No, I mean, this was a terrific discussion and I think we, uh, we really covered all the bases there. We, we, the music, the physics, right. the climate science, the outreach, it's, uh, even the right. circus, it's all in there. <laughs> right. Just as a closing thing, I mean, you reflect, you said how, you know, you're here at Princeton at this great university. And so you've thought, is this all my contribution? I think it's, I think it's good for us all to reflect on the fact that it's a real privilege to do what we do and that that brings some kind of responsibility with it, even if it's not always clear where that should lead us. But, um, 
you know, you, yeah. you clearly have a deep sense of that and it's great. Um, yeah. You know, teach it to the students and so on. Right. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for talking, Nather. I really appreciate it. Was it was my pleasure, Adam. Thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this. Yeah. Yeah. This is a form of communication too, although probably to a very self-selecting and uh, sympathetic audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, our, our audience was often self-selecting too. And I think it's, I mean, it's interesting, you know, I mean, just with a conversation between you and I, it's, you know, you can just see people uh, trying to figure out how they can contribute to the broader conversation. Uh, and obviously there's a lot of different ways to do that. And I think this is a, you know, what you're doing is, is a great way too. So I appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, all right. Let's close it there. Thanks, Nader. All right. Thank you. Okay. Have see a good you evening. Now. You too. Bye-bye. There's a lot of ways to contribute to the broader conversation, and this one is particularly fun and satisfying when you have a guest like Nader Jivanji. That was a great conversation, right? My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editors and post-producers are Stefan Wiener and Dana Hamm, and our audio engineer is Juan Aboitis. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.